This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. This week, your host Michael Green speaks with the inimitable Julian Gardner. Although he swears he never planned out his career, he has ended up working in some of the most interesting organisations in our system, including being a founding member of the iconic Fitzroy Legal Service, the inaugural director of Victorian Legal Aid, and co-editing the first incarnation of the Law Handbook. Although he may not have mapped out a plan, purpose and meaning have always been central to Julian's career choices. Early on in his life in the law, this actually resulted in him walking away from the profession before his career had really begun. I had formed the view that uh, the law was in no way creative. It seemed to me that all I created was bills. So I decided I was not going to do anything, have anything to do with the law again. I was quite disillusioned. But I found it's a struggle to, to make a living in, in London. I had uh, rarely ever kept a diary, but I did keep a diary then, and I remember writing it one night that uh, I was going to go back to Melbourne and do something useful. Not a terribly interesting word, but I had no idea what it meant. But it, it, was, it was quite a, a significant moment for me because uh, after I came back, within a year, I had found that something useful. Good morning, Julian, and welcome to Lives in the Law. Julian, someone once said, give me the boy and I'll give you the man. You had an interesting childhood in, in, a, in a Quaker family. Yes, that's right. Post-World War II England, the youngest of three children. Yes. What was it like growing up in that environment? Well, it was there were still lots of um, physical manifestations of the war that I remember as a child and rationing went on for a while, but... Uh, it, it was pretty good. We, we were a family that uh, didn't have much money. My father was still a student on a scholarship at that stage, and I was the youngest by nine years of, of, of my sister. So, But that didn't seem to trouble us. We, we were wealthy in the sense we had a house full of books. And where did those books come from? Oh, look, uh, they, I, I don't remember uh, them in detail other than the fact that they were there and, you know, I was an avid reader. Your father sounds an interesting man. He'd been a conscientious objector during World War II, which I assume came out of his Quakerism. Yes, I think that's right. It was consistent with it. He drove an ambulance as a conscientious objector, had left school at 15, but ultimately obtained a PhD in psychology. Did he have a big influence upon you? Look, uh, he was a bit of an absent father, really, because he uh, often he'd leave before I got up and come home after I got home. Um, I mean, he... A lot of the years that I was capable of remembering, he, he was a student. So clearly, you know, the Quakerism uh, with which he was very much involved uh, had an influence upon me. He had a very inquiring mind and I think that uh, stimulated me. And your mother must have been a remarkable person because she was left to bring up you three children when you arrived here in Australia. Your father left the family. That's right. She's a migrant, a mum in a foreign country. yes. And she's got three children to look after. Mm -hmm. She must have been a remarkable woman and she must have had a big influence on you. Look, she did. And uh, it, it was pretty tough for her when she first arrived here. There were no family, no supports uh, at all. 
Um, my my sister was at that stage at university, so um, it wasn't as though we were three little children. But uh, financially, things were tough. Um, she ultimately got a, uh, a morning job with the local GP, which she did for about 50 years until he retired and she was um, effectively uh, made redundant at the age of 99. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 99? Yeah, yeah. That is amazing. It was. She was, uh, I mean, towards the end, she didn't go to work every day, but he'd bring the, the accounts and things to her. So at the age of 99, your mother still had every mental faculty in perfect working order. Yes, she would tell you the same story more than once, but yes. Don't we all? (laughs) So you, as a 12-year-old, arrive in Melbourne. Yes. You finish up at University High School. Correct. You'd been at a private school in the UK, Mm -hmm. Abington Grammar. What was your experience like at an English private school Hmm. compared to a state high school here in Australia? Chalk and cheese. Um, The the English school was 400 years old. It was steeped in tradition. Uh, The prefects could cane. We played rugby twice a week. Uh, And I walked mainly in fear. Um, To go to university high school was the first time I think I'd felt really comfortable at school um, I didn't walk in fear, and it was then um, a highly uh, academic school, but also a highly sporting school. And there were a lot of um, very multicultural, a lot of Eastern uh, European children there, who, amongst them, you know, some very, very bright kids. So it was it was stimulating. My recollection of that time is that University High School and Melbourne High School were the premier schools in the state. The expensive private schools really struggled to keep up with the academic, sporting, yes. artistic standards that University High and Melbourne High set. That together with McRobertson Girls. Yes, of course, yes. Yeah. And so uh, it was a school which you found your niche and fitted into well. I did, yeah. It, it, it was a joy not to, to be walking, as I say, wondering what was going to happen to you next. And uh, yeah. I'll just uh, digress for a moment, and this is a bit of self-indulgence, but I used to read a lot about those English boarding schools when mm. I was uh, a young boy, and it always intrigued me that the prefects could cane some of the younger students. Yes. I, and I thought, I don't think I'd allow another boy to cane me, but well, it was just accepted, wasn't it? Well, you just didn't have any choice. Yeah. You didn't have any choice. I mean, look, as I say, it was steeped in tradition. There were 15 rugby pitches. I might say I'd won a scholarship there. That was the only reason I managed to, to, to go there. Uh, we, we went to school Saturday mornings. It, it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty rigorous. As much as you and University High were a very good fit, you've said that you and Melbourne University Law School were not such a good fit. But you your accommodation was at International House. Yes. Which... Uh, was called a college and maybe a hall of residence now, that was a very good fit. What was the the law school like and what was International House like? Well, the law school I just found intimidating. It was there, it it was at that time filled with a lot of people who seemed to have come from fairly wealthy and privileged backgrounds with whom I had nothing in common. There was very little pastoral support. You didn't expect tutors to be able to talk to you or anything like that. You, You walked in awe of them. And uh, I didn't know anybody in the law. I mean, I'd never met a lawyer. I'd never been in a lawyer's office. 
So I just didn't feel comfortable there. I was also doing an arts degree, which I enjoyed. Um, in those days, it was a rarity to do a dual degree. Now it's, of course, very common. In contrast, International House was a college, a residential college, um, which was based on the principle that 50% of the students were Australian and 50% overseas. So its fundamental principles were about valuing difference. And, and it was only six years old. Um, it was quite new and it arose from some terrible racism that was being experienced by Colombo Plan students coming here to study in Melbourne. So it very much fitted in with the values that I had of equality and, and, and tolerance and uh, an absence of prejudice. It contributed towards some of the management and leadership skills that you developed and you used later in your working life. How was that? Um, I became president of the Students Club, so I you know, had to learn how to manage committees and, uh, and so forth. I produced the first play. We, we put on these plays at the Union Theatre and that involved an enormous amount of logistical and management. And also the, the head of college at that time was very well connected uh, and used to have fascinating people come to dinner and sit at high tables. So I found myself having to learn to, to make conversation with people who I found totally intimidating and awe-inspiring. So there were a whole lot of things that uh, International House taught me that I, I wouldn't have got if I hadn't been a residential student. Among those awe-inspiring people who you met and spoke with were Lee Kuan Yew. Yes. Later the uh, quasi-dictator of Singapore. Yes. And Tom Mboya. Hmm who was the Prime Minister of Kenya? I believe so. Did they have an impact upon you? Were they Look, they were both young, idealistic men. I mean, you, you, you refer to Lee Kuan Yew as, as being a quasi-dictator, but at that stage he was, he was a really, he was a socialist in his, his thinking. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but he really uh, was visionary. They were both visionary and inspiring. They were young, they were... Firebrand's the wrong word, but they had that that fire in their belly, and uh, I was I, I was really uh, inspired by both of them. I mean, they were just people there who wanted to make a difference and change the world. Through assistance by a tutor, I think you obtained articles at Pavey Wilson Cohen and Carter, an established and conservative Melbourne legal firm at the time. Yes. How did that article's interview go? Well, um, I had to do some very fast footwork because I was asked um, who I voted for and uh, I think I said something bland like, well, I thought both parties had some good and bad policies. And I was also asked what I thought of the recent socialist legislation and I had no idea what that was. It turned out it had something to do with licensing laws because they acted for the brewery. So uh, I was almost astounded when they decided to... Uh, Give me a job. Despite that possibly unpromising beginning, in fact, you had what we would call in those times good articles where they gave you good work and... Uh, no, they did. And you, it helped you develop as a lawyer. Oh, yes. Look, I, I, I've got no complaints about that. In fact, in some things I was thrown into the deep end. I was never used as a filing clerk and uh, I found myself being given the task of writing some fairly long letters of advice, some of which got a big red pencil through because having studied Latin for nine years, I thought that lawyers were supposed to use the Latin and I was told that insurance companies didn't understand what I was talking about. Yes, I remember Latin was just going out at that time, I guess, in the yes. law, but uh, yes, it was there. When you finish your articles, you go to the UK for 12 months. You have what maybe today might be called a gap year or something. Mm. 
you decided to go and uh, go back and uh, have a look around the UK. What was the result of that trip? I had formed the view that uh, the law was in no way creative. It seemed to me that all I created was bills. So I decided I was not going to do anything, have anything to do with the law again. I was quite disillusioned. But I found it's a struggle to, to make a living in, in London. I had uh, rarely ever kept a diary, but I did keep a diary then. And I remember writing it one night that uh, I was going to go back to Melbourne and do something useful. Not a terribly interesting word, but I had no idea what it meant. But it, it was it was quite a, a significant moment for me because uh, after I came back, within a year, I had found that something useful. Which was the iconic Fitzroy Legal Service. That's right. It was a very influential body at that time. Um, what we're talking early 70s, I guess. Uh, December 72, it, it opened its doors. Can you tell us a bit about prior to December 72, how it got to the stage of opening its doors? Well, um, there was one particular youth worker there who found that he had all these kids who could never get any legal help when they were in trouble. He was organising a barrel on a Sunday to raise money for draft resistors, at which we stood around and talked about the fact that we needed to do something about this. Somehow from that emerged this idea of, well, let's set up a legal service. None of us actually knew what that meant. In fact, there was such an argument about how to manage it that uh, in the end, the hotter heads said, well, let's just open next Monday. And we did. Now, at that time, you've uh, reverted to your um, conservative roots and you're working with Mool Hamilton and Derham. I am, yes. A uh, conservative legal firm. yes. Uh, but at the same time you're involved in the establishment of the Fitzroy Legal Service. What sort of work were you doing at Mills? How did that mesh with the legal service or did, well, did it, it mesh it, at all? It didn't really. I, I was doing uh, general litigation, a variety of commercial litigation as well as some injuries, as well as some uh, patent work. There was no connection between the two. And then at some stage, you obtained sufficient funds to employ a person full-time for the legal service? Correct. And who was that person? Well, I applied for that job. So in 1975, I left Mills, went to, to work there full-time with the with a strange title of lawyer initiator, which the idea was that they didn't want my primary focus to be casework. They wanted my primary focus to be initiate change and, and develop and grow the, the, the service. Although, of course, I was doing casework as well. So I took a 50% drop in income and had a very supportive wife who was teaching and therefore allowed me to do that. I couldn't have done it without her. Julian, when you say they, is they still a committee that controls the Fitzroy Legal Service made up of young idealistic lawyers or is there some government involvement? No, 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 no government involvement at all. And it wasn't just lawyers. The, we, we had a very strong principle of, of involving the community. So in those days, interviews with a client were conducted by a lawyer and a non-lawyer. A non-lawyer was there to make sure that the lawyer was communicating properly and, and at times to translate and to humanise the process because we believe that the lawyers didn't deal very well with, with the sort of clientele we had. So the committee of management was actually called an implementation group because it was there to implement the wishes of the general meeting. Very, It was a very 1970s uh, flower, flower child type of organisation. But it, it uh, survived and flourished. It threatened the mainstream profession, which I must say I was a part of the mainstream profession at the time and I had no idea of that. The Bar Council declared you off limits. Correct. And some people even sought advice on obtaining an injunction to stop yes. Fitzroy Legal Service. 
Why was it so threatening to the profession? Look, it's, it's hard to, to imagine today, but you've got to think then just how radical this was. The idea that here was a, a legal office, presumably I'd say it's offering free legal work. Um, so presumably the local lawyers were worried about their livelihoods because that was the group that, that, that sought to, to get some advice. The Bar Council's a bit more understandable because then it was, or probably still is, barristers weren't allowed in solicitors' offices and so they deemed this to be a solicitors' office. But that caused problems for us because as a number of our volunteers were at the Bar. But, yes, it was, it was radical. It was different. And uh, more power to you and to it then and now. Out of the Fitzroy Legal Service came a very useful, powerful tool, the Legal Resources Handbook, mm-hmm. now called the Law Handbook. How did that come into existence? I mean, that my, if I've got it right, you can now buy it around the corner at the uh, yes. Law Institute bookshop Yep. and a new edition comes out regularly. Every year. How did, what was the genesis? How did it come about? Well, it came about uh, because we had lawyers who were, say, expert in family law or crime who would volunteer in the evenings but didn't know anything about tenancy. And so what we did was to start to write some simple sheets about, you know, the basics of crime or the basics of, you know, to help our volunteers. And it grew like topsy. It was never, it's hard to determine at what point the decision was made for it to, to be put into a book. But we, we did, that's, that was its genesis. And the decision was to try and write something which was just about Victorian law. It was practical. It was easy to read. It was written in plain English or attempted to, which is exceedingly difficult. If you've ever tried to work out how to describe uh, the term consideration in contract law in in less than a whole paragraph, it's impossible. Um, And so it just grew like topsy. And exists to this day. And uh, I, among the many tens of thousands, I should thank you because I, when I was in practice, I uh, had it when I was working outside my own Comfort zone. Yes. I would use it as a roadmap to direct me in in the right direction. Yes. Yeah. And even in the second half of my career as a barrister's clerk, I still bought a copy and had it behind me just in case. How did it get to be so widespread and become the bestseller that it now is? Well, we uh, took it to a number of publishers uh, who said you'd have to sell four thousand. It's only Victorian. Nobody's interested in this sort of thing. The public don't interested. So I produced what. I would laughingly now call a business plan, it wasn't certainly that, that if we paid the printer to publish and sold 100 copies a week for the rest of the year, we could continue to pay the wages, having used all of the wages money to pay the printer. So that's what we did. I got a gig on the 7.30 program on the ABC with Peter Couchman. He thought it was better than sliced bread. The 4,000 copies we sold in eight days. It was just extraordinary. We printed another 4,000 and I think they slowly took about three weeks or four weeks to sell. And then we printed another 10,000. So it hit an un, an untapped market. It, it, it was radical. It was new. It was different. And as you say, suburban solicitors, social workers clamoured for it. And the fact that it's going 43 years later with an annual edition, I would never have imagined that. And all credit to you to you and to th- those who worked with you to uh, A, to have the idea and B, to bring it to fruition. Um, what a wonderful thing. Well, it was. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was an exciting moment. Legal aid has been a large part of your career. Yes. 
you're involved with the drafting of the new legal aid legislation? Well, it's, to say I was involved with the drafting, uh, the Law Institute and Bar set up uh, a committee with five people from each and uh, came up with something pretty conservative. Uh, I attacked it. They decided to have another look at it and I was put on as one of those five Law Institute nominees on that committee. So, yes, that committee did come up with essentially what the, uh, the then Liberal government enacted. You are the inaugural director of the Victorian Legal Aid Commission. It's now called, what, Victorian Legal Aid? Yes. Just to go back a little bit, I can't recall what was there by way of legal aid before the Legal Aid Commission existed? Uh, there were three bodies. There was Legal Aid Committee, which was run by the Bar and Law Institute. There was the Public Solicitor's Office, which was part of the State Law Department. And there was the Australian Legal Aid Office, which had been set up by Lionel Murphy for the Commonwealth. These three bodies didn't really talk to each other. To know to which of the three you had to go to get help, you have to answer some simple questions Am I a Commonwealth or state person? Is my law a Commonwealth? Is, is, is the law I'm involved with Commonwealth and state? And if it's crime, is it indictable or summary? If you could answer those questions, you knew which, which of the three offices to go to. So, so my job was to amalgamate them, and they didn't actually talk to each other. Can you take us back then and tell us a little bit about how you did that job of bringing the three of them together and getting them to be the coherent body, which I think it still is, Victoria Legal Aid or what was then called the Victorian Legal Aid Commission? Look, it, it was difficult in its early days. Um, there were the three different cultures and my job was to try and create a new culture. And I don't think you can create cultures in a, in a short time. It takes a long time. And I would say that when I left there uh, eight, nine years later, there were still some vestiges of, of, of the old thinking in you know, a small number of people. So it wasn't, it wasn't easy to amalgamate. It appears to me in our community at the moment that access to justice is a major problem because of the cost. Mm -hmm. I think when you started in the law, when I started in the law, ordinary citizens of our community could have some access to justice, at least at least to the level of the magistrate's court, possibly civil matters in the magistrate's court. But today the costs are so high that I don't think, apart unless you are very wealthy or you are a wealthy corporation, it's difficult to get access to our court system anyway. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it... Uh... I don't think it was easier then. Um, it, it was easier if you could find somebody, but how did you find somebody? And, and look, the only legal advice office open before Fitzroy was the Law Institute's one, which was on, the, I think, the 17th floor of a building in Collins Street where you could get free legal advice, um, hardly accessible. I mean, one of, one of the enduring memories I have was one week where a, a migrant woman with three children left by her husband, was convicted for shoplifting for a chocolate bar and a pair of panties and was fined what was then the equivalent of three weeks' pension. In the same... She was unrepresented and no interpreter. In a different magistrate's court, the son of a well-known Melbourne family was charged with having urinated from a tram stop in Burke Street through the open door of a driver's window. Represented by a QC, he got a good behaviour bond and no conviction. And the contrast between those two cases, which happened in the same week, I think illustrates part of my motivation, but it also illustrates that people like them. Whereas today, that woman would have a duty lawyer. Yeah. Uh, she might not get legal assistance, but she would have a duty lawyer, and she certainly wouldn't suffer the fate that she suffered then. That's encouraging. Did you find it satisfying work setting up the Legal Aid Commission? Oh, enormously so. 
I mean, it, it, it was creating a new thing. And also we went through a period, one of our major sources of income was the uh, excess on the Solicitor's Guarantee Fund. And at, at some stage during my time there, interest rates went to 17% and we had more money pouring in. The problem was you, you didn't know whether it would last for more than 12 months. So you, you couldn't put people on permanently. But we did a lot of very creative things. Um, it was a period of, of, of growth and excitement. You finished up as the Director of Legal Aid in 1989. You'd had 10 years there. Well, nine. Nine. You then, the roles that you've played since then are numerous, member of the Refugee Review Tribunal, Chair of the State Mental Health Review Board, Victorian Public Advocate, Member and Vice Chair of the Australian Press Council, Chair of Mind Australia, involved with the Voluntary Assisted Dying Task Force, and a member of the Ministerial Advisory Panel for Voluntary Assisted Dying. That's not a smooth career path. It's not as if you <laughs> took a partnership at Mool's and worked your way through to being a senior partner and retired. Was it stressful moving from job to job or taking these positions, maybe not having positions, maybe having periods where you didn't have a role, or did it all run pretty smoothly? No, it, it, it didn't. And, look, I, I, I never had a career plan. So, yes, we did struggle financially then. When I was at the Fitzroy Legal Service, after a year, the money ran out and I got a phone call from Mool saying, you've had your year off, come back and we'll make you a partner. And I remember a most extraordinary telephone conversation where I said, I'm having too much fun, but thank you. I, I was, at that time, the legal profession was quite linear in its progression. You know, you, you rose to the level of partnership and then for the next 30 years, you came in through the same front door. I couldn't quite picture doing that. So I didn't mind the movement around. When I left Legal Aid, I was seconded to set up a brand new tribunal to deal with all the workers' compensation matters in Victoria, which having set it up, I then decided I better stay and try and make it work. When Jeff Kennett was elected, legislation was passed repealing the whole workers' compensation legislation. So I found myself suddenly out of work in my late 40s. And uh, I travelled in Southeast Asia. I looked for some work in human rights in Cambodia, which at that stage was just recovering from, from Pol Pot. Um, and uh, I had seven months off there. And I, I'm eternally grateful to Jeff Kennett because otherwise I would never have taken long service leave. And it was, it was a wonderful break in my life. Other than that time, really, I moved from time to time. I found each change invigorating. It, it really did stimulate uh, me in, in terms of what I had to, to do. Well, speaking of those changes, we hear about the public advocate. Mm. I have got a general idea of what the role is. Mm -hmm. um, an office up in Carlton is my in my um, yes my view of it, my mental view of it. What does the role entail, public advocate, and what's its important to our community? Well, its role is very diverse, which is one of its attractions. Um, I guess its primary role is to act as the guardian of last resort for people who lack capacity to make decisions for themselves, and decisions need to be made about where they live or their health care and, and you know, who looks after them, et cetera. That's a jurisdiction that the Supreme Court has had for centuries through the parents' patriae jurisdiction and which still holds concurrently with the public advocate. So at one level, you're exercising an extremely important judicial or quasi-judicial role, but also it has a role of advocating for people with disabilities. It focuses on cognitive disabilities, not so much the physical. So we're talking about intellectual disability, acquired brain injury, mental illness, 
and uh, and dementia. So it's a wonderful role because you have a chance to try and change the way laws, practices, policies and of government are conducted. And you do so because you have to be appointed for seven years and you can only be sacked by a vote of both houses of parliament. So it means that when you say you want to talk to the secretary of a department or you want to see a minister, you've got a very good chance of getting in. And, and, and yet, of course, you've got to play that role very subtly. It's not a matter of saying, well, you know, saying, you know, stomping on the front pages of the papers. A lot of the work you do is invisible behind the scenes, but you can, you can actually achieve a lot of change through your advocacy. Just so that um, it's clear, I say the public advocate as though it's one person, it is one person, but there is a significant office mm. and administration oh, yes. behind yes. you, isn't yes. it? So VCAT uh, makes the decision to appoint the public advocate as guardian and the public advocate then delegates those to members of staff who actually do the legwork. Yeah. Uh, and I would only get involved in individual cases which were either particularly significant or particularly contentious, such as the some critical end-of-life decision-making, which, which I had to do from time to time. And that, that was, that was a, a really challenging part of the role, deciding that now was the time that somebody should come to the end of their life. We should withdraw medical treatment and allow them to die. Um, difficult decisions, and, but ones that I found really challenging. How do you go about making those decisions? Well, uh, of course, you do it as a good lawyer does within the construct of the law, but uh, that's, that's the easy part. Um, I mean, let me give you an example. You may recall the case of Maria Corp, who was the victim of a, an attempted murder put in the boot of her car, found five days later at the shrine, went to the Alfred. She was breathing and her heart was working, but she was totally unresponsive and she was kept alive by artificial feeding. The hospital wanted to withdraw treatment because it was futile. The husband had been on the front page of the Herald Sun saying, she is a devout Catholic and I will fight in court any attempt to withdraw treatment. He, of course, was subsequently charged with her attempted murder and his lover was convicted of attempted murder. So the hospital said, well, this is all too high risk. It's all over the media because there was all sorts of stuff about swingers parties and witches and previous deaths. It was, it was bizarre. So they shifted the risk by having a guardian appointed, namely me, to make the decision about whether she should and when she should die. So the process was to do a f detailed investigation to try and find out whether she had any views on this matter. And she didn't, um, or nobody could recall her. So therefore, I sought to make a decision based upon what her values, what were the critical beliefs that made her life meaningful and worthwhile for her, which was her Catholicism. And so I then had to find out what the Pope had to say about this circumstance, do all sorts of research. Uh, I mean, it's not clear what the, the policies were, but I, uh, in the end, came to the decision, having done all sorts of work of getting second opinions and quizzing the doctors and so forth, uh, ultimately to make the decision that uh, treatment should be withdrawn. And, and I sat down with her, even though she didn't know I was in the room and couldn't hear or see me and talked to her about it. And I have to say, I threw everybody else out of the room because it was a very emotional and difficult conversation to have with her. I had at that stage got a guard put on her room because people were pretending to be family members and taking photographs of her and selling them to the papers. I mean, it was it was just fraught with problems. So you could only go and visit her if you got a letter of authority from me. And and when the decision was announced, the, the front page of the, of the Herald Sun was 
filled with huge letters saying starving to death. And as I say, the hate mail poured in and uh, and some lovely positive supportive mail. And, and it was indicative, though, of, of those fairly rare but critical end-of-life decisions that, you know, not many people have to make in those lives. And uh, technically the decision wasn't that difficult. It was doing it in the full glare of publicity that made it so difficult. Other decisions were harder technically, but nobody knew I was doing them. What period, what length of time did you have, Julian, to make these decisions? I'm assuming there was a degree of fraughtness, a high degree of fraughtness, because it needed to be done very quickly. Well, yes and no. This, I think it, it was a span of about five months. The hospital after she died, said to me, oh my God, this was costing us a fortune and we would just wish you'd get on with it. And to their credit, never put any pressure on me. So there was never any question this was made for financial reasons. I mean, she was being sustained by artificial feeding and and excellent hospital nursing care. But I had to make sure that we had done the most. I mean, I was ringing relatives in Portugal or the island of Madeira off the coast of Portugal to try and find out if they had any views and wishes and so forth. It was a most unusual, drawn-out affair. But it's an example of the role the public advocate plays and the necessity of having someone like the public advocate in an independent position to make these difficult decisions. Yeah, indeed. The the Premier of the time, who, who himself was a Catholic, was three days in a row doorstopped and said... This is a matter of the public advocate who will make a decision independent of God, of, of government in, in the woman's best interests. And he stuck to that mantra because he just didn't want to be involved. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. Julian, you were previously Vice Chairman of the Australian Press Council. You're still a panel member of the Australian Press Council. The press are an essential part of a functioning democracy. And of course, they are also, or it is also, contentious in itself. People have differing views of the press and the role it should play in our society. Our defamation laws can be contentious as to whether they are too restrictive of a free press. Questions of the concentration of ownership of the press are current at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a request for a Royal Commission into the ownership of the press, the concentration of its ownership. It must be a satisfying position to hold, to be on that council, to be playing a part or having a role to play in such an important part of our democracy. Look, uh, a free press is is critical to, to a surviving democracy. The press council's primary role is to set standards which the uh, print media, newspapers, magazines must comply with and to receive and resolve and, if necessary, arbitrate on complaints. But going back to the first point, yes, look, I agree with you. Those those threats to the freedom of press exist, in addition to which a number of the major print organisations are losing revenue, which means that uh, the, the extent to which you can exercise the role of being an investigative journalist, which is an expensive operation, is is limited. But the fact that they've had to get rid of a whole lot of sub-editors means that you have a lot of more problems of quality in terms of accuracy and so forth than you used to have. So, yeah, I think there is a need to to continue to be very vigilant and fight 
for freedom of the press because without it, democracy is doomed. In terms of the role of, of, of the press council, I mean, in some ways, um, the most enjoyable bit for me is, is the arbitrations where I find myself having to ponder on questions about whether something is in the public interest or whether it's really just of interest to the public. And the two are quite different. Or what is offensive and how, you know, how, how offensive can you be before you limit somebody's right to say it? Those are really fascinating questions. And from time to time, arbitrating on those matters, I just find really fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Does the press council have any role to play? I mean, media is now so different and so diverse yes. from what it, we understood it to be. Where does the press council have jurisdiction? Well, over anybody who signs up to be a member. So all of the major publications uh, except The Guardian Australia are members and except in Western Australia where they've set up their own process. So News Corp and, and, and Nine are the major funders. It's funded by those members, by the publications themselves. So already there's a conflict, a tension there. But nobody's really come up with a satisfactory answer of how else it could be funded because once you allow the government to fund there is a risk that government starts to have an influence in saying what can and can't be published. So I think there, there are some brave moves that we could take for government to fund public interest advocacy by giving certain sums of money at arm's length to some publications to allow them to do that. It, it's difficult. I, I, the Press Council struggles because as the revenue's falling to the print media, so they're less willing to, fa to fund it. Interesting indeed, but uh, you would think it continues to have an important role to play, and I guess that role will develop and the funding will change too. So, uh, mm. yeah. It's, it's, it's not an easy problem to solve. Watch this space. Mm. Julian, on this topic of freedom of the press, there seems to be a tension between that freedom to say whatever you like and something which is too offensive and goes beyond the pale. How do we draw, as a community or a society, how do we draw that line of enabling people to be offensive up to a certain point, but then saying beyond that point, you're too offensive, you have offended yourself? Michael, that's a, it's a really tricky one. Um, look, there are many restrictions on freedom of speech. You, the classic legal one is you can't shout fire in the in a theatre and because that's putting people's safety and lives at risk. So there are clear limits you should let there. I think once we get to the point of saying you cannot be offensive, I think we've crossed the line. So the question is, how offensive can you be? And that, I think, is exceedingly difficult to determine. But you see, you, you can offend. We, we, we don't find it difficult to, to say that making comments about the, the Holocaust, questioning its reality, are offensive to, to members of the Jewish community. But where is it that we allow people to have genuine historical academic debate and, and where do we draw the line? So, yes, there is a limit to, to offensiveness, but it's one that I think we need to draw very cautiously. And would I be right in, in thinking that the line moves depending on society at any given time? Oh, it, it, it certainly does. And, uh, look, cartoons going back to the start of the, uh, the last century were, were often terribly offensive uh, when you look at them now. And, yes, clearly... Our standards change as, as, as time goes on. What might have been offensive to the, uh, the trans community, what, what is offensive now, might not have been you know, 20 years ago, for example. I think that 
the standards. And, and there is a problem with cartoons because cartoons are recognised as being something where you're allowed to take a bit more liberty. They always have. But, uh, yes, you've got to reflect current. I mean, you've got to decide, well, is this offensive to people today? And I'm assuming what is offensive today is being affected by the internet and social media. Look, it has to be, and uh, that makes it all the more complex. One of the very interesting things you've been involved in over the past four or five years, Julian, is the drafting and implementation of the voluntary assisted dying legislation here in Victoria. Mm. You've called it the most challenging and exciting thing you've done in your career from a moral, ethical, legal and emotional viewpoint. Could you briefly explain the legislation to us? Mm -hmm. Because as much as we know it exists, I'm sure not many of us know the ins and outs of it. Yes. Secondly, why is it so challenging and exciting? And then thirdly, how is it actually playing out on the ground now? Right. Well, what the law provides is that somebody who is has a disease or illness or condition that is going to cause them to die and it's likely or considered that they will die within the next six months or 12 months in the case of neuro diseases such as uh, motor neuron disease. And they meet certain specific requirements, most important of which is that they must have a capacity to make decisions for themselves. So this is entirely voluntary. If they can meet the criteria and they're assessed by two doctors with certain qualifications and certain training, they can then get access to medication which they can administer to themselves at a time of their choosing, or in a smaller number of cases where they're physically unable to actually raise a glass of liquid to their lips or to, or to swallow, the medication can be administered by a medical practitioner. The law in Victoria is, was described by the Premier as being the most conservative in the world, and I think that's probably right. It has so many safeguards and protections that it is overly bureaucratic, but that was necessary in order to satisfy this balancing act. What made it challenging was that the goal of promoting individual autonomy has also to be balanced against the duty of the state to present, protect those who can't protect themselves, whether they be people who are victims of elder abuse, whether they be people who don't have a capacity to make decisions for themselves. So balancing those and balancing the rights of people to conscientiously object and say, I don't want to be involved, and yet not restricting access, the balancing of safety not only for the individual to make sure that they're not preyed upon or coerced, and also to protect the public because there were significant concerns raised about having this lethal drug out there in the community. So there are ethical considerations, there are moral considerations, but there is the balancing of, of these rights. Ultimately, the goal of the legislation is to reduce suffering because person has to be experiencing suffering which can't be relieved in any way acceptable to them. It's now been in operation for nearly 18 months. The, the data has been released for the first 12 months and there were 124 people who who ended their life using voluntary assisted dying. But I don't want to focus on that figure because the real goal is, is really reducing suffering. There are an additional number who got the medication but never took it, but received sufficient comfort to relieve their suffering. There are also the families who can join in with them in, in their voluntary decision, celebrate the last days and weeks and months, 
as distinct from those families who previously had somebody who committed suicide. The coroner estimated that at least one death a week occurred in Victoria from people who would have otherwise qualified. One suicide, often in grim, gruesome circumstances. So it's their suffering. And it's also relieved the suffering for a lot of people who simply say, oh, I just feel so much more comfortable now. I know that that may be an option for me. So we focus on the number of deaths, but that's not the real indicator of success. You see, I, I mean, I think laws that involve balancing acts. I mean, previously I had spent nearly a year doing a review of Victoria's Equal Opportunity Act, and there, once again, you're, you're, you're balancing competing legal rights. I was involved uh, chairing an expert committee for the Minister on the Mental Health Act. Um, once again, you're, you're looking at severe restrictions on personal liberties by, taking, by making somebody an involuntary patient, but at the same time, you've got to look at the duty of the state to protect those who can't protect themselves. I find those balancing acts challenging and rewarding to deal with. Very interesting indeed, and uh, I think we're very fortunate, Julian, to have you as one of the people who is uh, making or involved in that decision-making process for us as a community. You've had an outstanding career of community service, which we are grateful for. Looking back to your childhood, would you put a great deal of emphasis on the Quakerism you grew up under in the formation of you to be a person who's been of, who's worked in public service most of their life? That's, that's, uh, it's always difficult to to actually be sure about that. But look, I can say this, the, the Quakers or the Friends Societies are sometimes known, I admire very much. They are Christians who are social activists. They have been very active going back historically to the great you know, Cadbury's and Fry's of, of, the, of the 19th century. Certainly their principles of, of seeking to alleviate poverty and injustice and unfairness clearly formed part of my psyche or, or, or whatever. So yes, it's hard to say that they, they weren't part of where I, where I came to you know, pursue my career. So if migrants to Australia were still arriving on boats, which of course they're not, but if they were and we could mm. go down to Port Melbourne and uh, greet a migrant ship and there's a young 12-year-old hopping off the boat, mm -hmm. similar to Julian Gardner of uh, all those years ago, what would you say to him? Oh, goodness. Well, um, for a start, start trying to learn some of the local idioms as quickly as you can. Um, Such as who do you barrack for? Well, that's right. I didn't know what the word barrack meant, so I had to find an answer to that question very quickly. Uh, what would I say to that 12-year-old? Look, I I would say to myself, have a greater belief in yourself and have more self-confidence. I've, I've, I know it sounds strange with the things that I've been privileged to be involved in, but I've never had a great deal of self-belief, and I think that's held me back. I would also say that if you want to be involved in working for change, you've got to, you've got to be prepared to play the long game and, and not get frustrated too soon. If, if the pursuit of, of, of public good is going to bring you far more happiness than the pursuit of wealth and possessions. Would you do anything differently if you could do it again? In terms of career choices, no. Look, I, I didn't ever have a career plan. It just sort of happened to me until I finally stopped full-time employment when I left the public government. Then I set out a career plan for the first time in my life. And I said, right, I don't want to manage any longer. I've been a CEO for 27 years. Somebody else can do the damn job. I'd only want to be involved in things which uh, involve promotion of human rights and, uh, and, and justice. And uh, I want to do something that, you know, I'm not going to do it unless it, it gives me some pleasure. And that was my my then career plan, and, and I very happily for the last 12 years uh, have, have had a wonderful series of opportunities to realise that. Which you weren't through uh, all of the work you before that, Julian. Thank you very much for coming in this morning and telling us about your life in the law. Michael, it's been a pleasure. 
Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find links to things talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show and some wonderful photos of our guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks and subscribe, rate and review the show. It really helps others find out about us. Your host is former lawyer and Greenslist clerk Michael Green. Our show is produced by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. With COVID restrictions limiting numbers inside the County Court of Victoria, we are currently recording our shows at Owen Dixon Chambers on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue the discussion here today.